Hello, I'm Ben Eshmade and welcome to another edition of the Academy of St Martin in the Fields podcast. In this episode, we look back at one of the defining moments in the orchestra's history, when the Academy recorded the music for the highly successful 1984 film Amadeus. Dramatising the life of composer Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart through the eyes of a jealous competitor, Antonio Salieri, Amadeus was almost single-handedly responsible for introducing an entire generation to the music of Mozart. And on the 14th of October 2016, the Academy will perform the score once again as part of Amadeus Live at the Royal Albert Hall. We speak to Sir Neville Mariner, who reminisces about recording the score. But making music for, for a, a, a film, you're looking at an audience of many millions. Actor Simon Callow, who starred in the original theatre production and also appeared in the film. Salieri has done everything to be good, to be a pious man. You can't fault him. All of that has not been enough to give him true inspiration and conductor Ludwig Vicky, who explains the pitfalls of performing the score live. I love Amadeus. It's wonderful music, and they used it in a way in the movie. It couldn't be better written as movie music. So to Amadeus, the winner of eight Academy Awards, four BAFTAs and four Golden Globes. Directed by Milos Forman, who amongst other films was responsible for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the film and original play were written by the late great British playwright Sir Peter Schaffer and the film stars Tom Hulse as Mozart and F. Murray Abraham as Antonio Salieri. So first, Sir Neville Mariner tells us his memories of the director, the playwright and the reactions to this monumental film. I mean, how did you get involved in the film in the first place? Well, obviously Peter Schaffer uh, had been asking around. You know, in the in the play, there was only about six minutes music. For the film, they needed nearly two hours of, of music. So Peter had been asking around. The Academy's name came up pretty consistently. Uh, so we agree, agreed to meet when we could. But in those days, we were all travelling in different directions. Uh, and so we met in the, in the first-class lounge in the airport. They, they offered the invitation and, and I said, of course, so long as we could play the way the Academy play. And uh, I suppose the next time that we, we talked about it was down in the country in Devon where I have a house. Milos arrived uh, with a very big Hungarian sausage for us to uh, spend the weekend eating and we played tennis. Uh, Milos was quite good but he didn't win. And uh, But he won over lots of other things. <laughs> During the weekend, we decided which episodes in the script were going to need music and what sort of music. And then uh, it was agreed we could record the music. So we came to London in Abbey Road Studios and recorded everything. It took about two or three days, I think, to uh, record it all because we had uh, quite a lot of operatic uh, bits where well, we were lucky we were able to get the cast from Covent Garden you know it's just across the road and before they shot one one uh, bit of film uh, we'd made all the music and what happened then was that Milos took the, the the music with him to Prague to shoot the film and while he was filming he just played the music so that it was quite the reverse of normal practice you know you had the music after the episode in this case the the actors were acting to the music as well. When you 
met up and, and was, were talking about the film. Did you sort of discuss Mozart in detail? Oh, yes, indeed. Um, I think, well, the Academy's reputation was always pretty well made for its recordings of Mozart. So Peter Schaffer had, in his early days, before he'd been writing scripts and plays, had been a music critic, so he knew what he was talking about. Milos was the one who was the new boy. He's a quick learner. And and by the end of the film, Milos was the world's greatest expert on Mozart, you know. But So fortunately, a lot of the, the decisions we made were non-controversial, really. Um, Peter and I agreed about most things. Peter, of course, has always said this is not a, a documentary film about Mozart. It is a fantasy film. So we were able to improvise a lot of dramatic uh, moments. But the music was, I mean, of course, Mozart wrote so much. There was always something. But fortunately, we were able to agree. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that is that the idea of what music lasts, isn't it? And that, that's what the film explores. Yeah. Well, exactly. I think that even in, in, at its time, it was realised that Mozart's invention was a much more a lasting affair than, than the rather plodding sort of music that Salieri wrote. Mm-hmm. There are some good moments. I mean, uh, for his, his time at the period, he's quite justifiably successful because it's quite what the, the, the musically interested public wanted that uh, Mozart just leapt ahead. Did you have any conversations with the actors? Yes, Tom, Tom came to spend Christmas here. Um, on that piano behind you there, <laughs> learning to look as if he could play the piano, because, of course, he couldn't at all. And so he uh, uh, had to be schooled with his, his piano playing, but uh, he spent a very happy Christmas here, I think, uh, fooling around, because there are some moments when he has to play with his back to the piano, you know, with some of Mozart's tricks. Tom enjoyed it immensely. And obviously, as a conductor, did you give him tips? I mean, that's quite fun to watch him conduct in the film. Oh, yes, indeed. And, in fact, I suppose historically... Utterly incorrect because conductors didn't conduct in that slide in those days. But it made convincing uh, his acting, I think, was, was good there. Yes, he, knew, he needed to know every gesture, really. For better or worse, when we think of Mozart, a lot of people will think of him now. Oh, yes, they will, yes. I mean, uh, Tom's, I suppose, reputation was made. I suppose Salieri perhaps made the strongest mark as, a, uh, you know, as an acting position. Did you ever think twice about it? Well, of course, once you've signed your contract, uh, there is no uh, turning back. It's the luck of the draw, whether the film is... Uh, the fact that he got an Oscar, I think, was a, a pleasant surprise. Mm. And it uh, certainly justified our... Uh, and, of course, um, probably economically, it was one of the more important things that the Academy had ever done. But making music for, for a, a, a film, you're looking at an audience of, of many millions, whereas when you make a gramophone record, you're thinking in thousands. So it's, uh, it's, it's quite a vehicle. And the soundtrack itself, I mean, I, I would imagine that, that sold an awful lot and introduced people to Mozart for the first time. 
Yeah, well, I think so. I think our justification is so many people still come to us now, 30 years later, saying, you know, if I hadn't been to Amadeus, I would never have been interested in, in, in music or that sort of music. And, and of course, the soundtrack has got an awful lot of gold discs attached to it. I think they're all plastered over the wall of the office somewhere. I think they discovered, to their horror, one day they started trying to play one and discovered it wasn't an Academy record at all. It was a military band <laughs> that they just painted gold. <laughs> we talked about the fact that, unfortunately, you didn't get to see the film being made, but I presume you got to go to the premiere? Yes, did. And in fact, one of the, the better premieres for me was the one in America. I was able to go to the premiere in America. The most extraordinary thing there was that it was utterly silent at the end of the film and they just played music throughout all the, the titles and the audience were entranced. And, they did. and for an American audience, this is quite something because uh, they tend to get up and go as, as, as soon as um, anything's over. Um, why do you think this film has, has lasted so long? Well, I think the actual quality of the filmmaking, first of all. Certainly the quality of the, the music uh, has established it as quite important. But more importantly, I think, for uh, musicians is that it did introduce um, Mozart to such a large audience because uh, you know how young people sometimes feel a little bit ill at ease in grand occasions, you know, for symphonic concerts and operas. And this was another uh, entrance into their life, which was it was like going in the back door with, with this. And, and as I say, going around the world now, it doesn't matter whether it's in China or in America, well, one of the first things they want to talk about is, is Amadeus and how, how much it influenced their life. Listening to an Academy of St. Martin in the Fields podcast with me, Ben Eshmade. Next, we speak to the actor who originally played Mozart on the National Theatre stage, Simon Callow. He went on to play Emmanuel Steckenader, librettist of the Magic Flute in the film, and got to see it all come together firsthand. start at the beginning of this story for you. Rather surprising it all was. I got a phone call from John Dexter. He uh, phoned me up one day and told me I'd um, better get my Kirkle numbers in order because uh, I was going to be asked to play Mozart in Peter Schaffer's new play. Astonishing thing to happen. I mean, Peter Schaffer was one of the most successful playwrights in the world. One way or the other, it had success written all over it, and they sent me the this, this script, uh, biked it over. I'd never had anything biked over to me before. I mean, I was, I was, I was 29, I think, and uh, I'd been acting for six years, that's all. And I remember one scene especially that I thought was a stroke of absolute genius, which was the scene in which Salieri welcomes Mozart to the court with a little march, and Mozart then transforms it into non più andrei from Figaro. And it was just... You know, gesture, it was a single theatrical gesture which summed up, in a way, the whole relationship and the whole tension. Anybody who did that to somebody else, well, you'd want to kill them, wouldn't you? So it sort of set up the whole play brilliantly. And then I didn't really hear very much about it. And then one day, 
my agent told me that she'd received a phone call from the National Theatre saying that they wanted me to play Orlando in As You Like It to be directed by John Dexter. And I thought, well, this is quite rather amazing. It's not a part that I'd ever expect to be cast in, but anyway, here was, you know, John doing As You Like It back at the National. What could be better? And then she said, more or less as an afterthought, oh, and she said, there's this other new play called, what is it? Amargus, Amadeus, what, I don't know what it is. She said, but anyway, it's, it's the play Mozart, and Peter, Peter Hall's going to direct it, but, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an offer on the two parts. And so there I was, playing Mozart and Amadeus, and in Paul Schofield was cast to play uh, Salieri, and then I heard, to my delight, that Felicity Kendall was playing the uh, my wife, uh, uh, because I knew Felicity and had worked with her already before, and there we were. So I did, as you like it, at the National Theatre under John, who's extremely moody and angry because, of course, he'd been deprived of this play, which he knew was going to make him into a multi-millionaire. And then, uh, and then, uh, and then came the great day of the read-through of the of Amadeus, and uh, it went uh, um, well. It went very well, really. Uh, Paul was everybody one wonderful company of actors from the National Theatre of the time, and I just went hell for leather at the uh, at the part. I didn't think there was any other way you could do it, and, and uh, Peter Hall after the read-through, put an sh- arm round my shoulder, which is always worrying, and said, um, that was a very brave reading. I thought, Christ, he's going to sack me. And uh, 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 he said, and you must keep all of that, but at all times, I must be able to believe that you wrote the overture to the manager of Figaro. So, but, but as far as the character of Mozart was concerned as well, what I had to show was the thing that his memory... Uh, Salieri still recalled as being absolutely ho- horrifyingly vulgar and cheap and 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 lewd and coarse and so on. So uh, there was a constant sort of seesaw around that. Uh, anyway, uh, so the, as I say, Peter plays a very fluid. He's very, again, unlike Pinter, for example, he's very very open to suggestions, and we we would rearrange the scenes, but it didn't appeal to Paul Schofield at all who had a very, 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 very large part to learn and to make sense of. And Paul was a bit stormy during some of the rehearsals. Uh, he wasn't like that at all. He was an easy man. But where his work was concerned, or where what he could do with the part was concerned, he was like a tiger. I would say, I know what's wrong with this scene. It just needs another speech. And, and, and Schofield said, not from me, baby. And then he, he said, you are a monster to me, which is a little frightening and uh, extraordinary. Anyway, we, we went on and we went on. Then we just did a couple of dress rehearsals and Paul just grew and grew into the role in the most extraordinary way. And then, then when we had the first preview, it was amazing. I'd never seen anything like that. I'd never experienced anything like that. I haven't much since, I must say. Paul's relationship with an audience was so extraordinary. He cast such a spell, and the audience was just absolutely like an infant at the teat. They were just drinking it in with such greedy delight, Paul and the play and everything, the music and, and all of us. And, and there was an atmosphere in the theatre like nothing I've ever, ever known since. Quite Quite extraordinary, absolutely due to the combination of, 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 of unerring sense of how an audience responds to theatre, his wonderful sense of narrative and so on, uh, Mozart's music and, and, of course, Paul Schofield. 
And um, at that first preview were Milos Forman, Robbie Lance, who was Milos's agent, but also Peter Schaffer's agent, and of course Peter Schaffer. And it was then that the deal was done to make the film of Amadeus. And so I didn't hear very much more about it for a while. I mean, it was a couple of years, wasn't it, before uh, the film was made? It was 83, I think we made it, and 84 it came out. Mm. Uh, at some point, I suddenly heard that, uh, that there were screen tears being done for the part of Mozart. And uh, uh, I had nothing, nobody asked me to screen test. Uh, 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 and uh, then eventually one day we got a message, no, Milos Forman wants to meet you. So, oh, he wants to screen test everybody else, but he wants to meet me. Well, that's all right. So <laughs> I went along and uh, I uh, walked into a room at the Connaught Hotel where he was staying and where the conversations were taking place. I walked into a room full of every young actor in England who'd had a good review in the last five years. Uh, and... And uh, Richard Griffiths, the great Richard Griffiths. And uh, so I, I threw my arms around some of Richard Griffiths and uh, he uh, uh, introduced me to Milos. He'd acted with Milos in a couple of Milos's films before. And uh, Milos said, I oh, said, ah, so you are Simon Callows. I wanted to meet you. Yes, yes. Come in here, come in here. And I went into the room with him. And there were all his people were there, the producer and all the rest of it. And he said, no, I've got to tell you, you are the greatest Mozart. I see Mozart everywhere in so many productions, but you are the best. You are the genius and asshole. You are funny and uh, make me cry. I wonder, what could you play in our film? <laughs> so, <clears throat> he said, what kind of actor do you think should play Mozart? I said, well, I Anybody's guess really isn't little, it should be little, like a bird, a little, little bird. I said, well, well certainly not me. And, uh, 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 and he said, anyway, we'll, you know, it was very nice to meet you. And so off, off, off uh, I went. And then a little later, I was having lunch at the Tate Gallery restaurant. You know, somehow they said, there's a, a Mr. Foreman on the line. This is before mobile phones, of course. You know, Mr. Foreman on the line. And so they brought the phone over and I said, Oh, and he said, oh I must screen test now. Please come and screen test. Uh, we'll see how it goes. So I said, Fine. So I did a screen test with Jeremy Irons as Salieri, Judy Davis as Mrs. Mozart. And then there was a gap, a silence. And then they, offered, they said, No, what Milos would like you to play in the film is Shikanade. I don't want to do it. So I said, no. I thought, sorry, my, when I got home that night, my answer phone was just full of messages. Milos from Simon, you must play Shikanedar. We have to have you in the film. And so, well, in the end, of course, uh, 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 one, was, one was readily blandished into it. And uh, <laughs> the very first thing we did was to record the music uh, at uh, Abbey Road uh, with Neville and the Academy, of course. What we were particularly recording was the parody sequence from uh, of Don Giovanni, that's a rather wonderful sequence in the film. I was having great difficulty in just finding the right note because it's it was basically it, it's it's a version of non più andrei, but it just happens not to start with a very useful note to, for the ear. And, it, and Neville was ever urbane, said, uh, "Don't worry, don't worry, Mr. Callow. I had exactly the same trouble with Birgit Nelson Nilsson last week in Stockholm." <laughs> very good. One of the uh, sequences from that parody was the. Uh, uh, which is uh, to which Peter had written new words called "We're going to make a soprano stew," 
Okay, to make a soprano stew, when you make a soprano stew, any old, any old, any old soprano will do. But this was to be sung by a chorus of 40 Czechoslovakian dwarves in the film. And so the the John Aldous singers were on hand to sing dwarfish song. and uh, But Neville wasn't happy with the sound. It wasn't very convincing as dwarves. And so uh, he said, gentlemen, will you um, kneel down at the microphones, will you, and Let's see if that makes any difference. It wasn't so great. So they said, um, uh, why don't you uh, turn your backs on the microphone and put your coats over your head? So they were going, we're muffled kind of sound. He said, it's not really quite working yet, is it? And Mr. Baker, he said to Kenny Baker, who was playing in the film, who was R2-D2, who just died, I think, two days ago. Okay, he said, uh, Mr. Mr. Baker, no uh, embarrassment, I think, on any part. Would you just show the gentleman how to sing this? And Kenny went, I can't make sopranos to His voice was, and uh, um, uh, said, that's lovely, thank you, Mr. Baker. Uh, so, gentlemen, would you just like to do that, please? I think still keep on your knees with your uh, coats over your head. And so that's how they sang <laughs> the recording. <laughs> Anyway, so the, Tom Hulse was there, too, who was playing Mozart. And I knew Tom, anyway. I knew Tom from, from Broadway. I, 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 I thought, well, he'll be very good as Mozart. Uh, um, and uh, it was fine, and we were very, you know, matey and so on. Uh, and then, uh, after a while, of course, we went to Prague to do the first rehearsals before the actual shooting took place. And we went to the huge Barandov studios outside Prague, which uh, always smelt of urine. And where rather um, unusually um, in the lavatories, instead of toilet paper, they had old scripts. <laughs> I mean, I, there have been some scripts that I've appeared in that I have not been a great fan of, but I thought that was going a little bit far. Anyway, um, and the crew, the wonderful uh, e- easiness of uh, um, the, the Czechoslovakian filmmaking. Uh, always started every day by drinking a huge tankard of lager at 8 o'clock in the morning, and then on we went. Anyway, it was quite a fraught, it was a very fraught shoot. Milos was under huge, terrible pressure, political pressure, because he'd come back for the first time to Czechoslovakia to make a film, having left the country, not to, for political reasons or with any difficulty, but he'd, he'd left to make a career in Hollywood, and he'd made it, and that had annoyed them intensely. It was it was very hard work, the film. Very, 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 very hard work indeed. Very tough. The demanding schedule, uh, and Milos you know, is very, very, very demanding indeed. Uh, and uh, a, a little um, surprising or confusing, he'd say... Uh, so, Tom, you know, you come home late at night, you go up the stairs, you open the door, and you say, Hello! Quietly, like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was an extraordinary long time, actually, six months or more. Yeah. I took about, I think, 36 planes or something there and back. Uh, um, and it, it, 
I, I don't think anybody doubted that it was going to be a big success. And Murray was very, you know, confident. And uh, um, uh, there was a whole galaxy of excellent actors, American and, and British actors. Uh, Twyla Tharp, another very driven personality uh, uh, as the uh, choreographer, but but she was, you know, she did wonderful work. It was it was a great, it was a, a a fantastic team, wonderfully designed, wonderful wigs, wonderful everything. It couldn't. It's done to the absolute acme of of and uh, and I remember the the premiere um, at uh, um, Leicester Square with with uh, Princess Diana and Prince Charles there and. Uh, uh, acclaim and a huge banquet afterwards and all the rest of it and there was no question at all in anybody's mind that it was going to be a, a huge 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 success the, the, the filming when you were playing Papagena um, yeah. you, you were actually in the theatre where Mozart was was that quite a nice yes, experience yes that was a fabulous in the uh, in the um, Till Theatre as it was then called Tillovo di Vadlo now the National Theatre I think again oh it was wonderful it was just wonderful and being in Prague was just fantastic for that for those sequences. You know the fact that we were in the place where Don Giovanni was actually first performed, and in the very theatre. And Peter used to say, we used to go. He and I used to wander around sometimes at night. And so Peter and I would just wander around these perfectly preserved streets. And uh, as he said, it was as if Mozart could have come round the corner at any moment, or Salieri pull up in a. Barouche or something. It was just uh, 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 wonderful. What an extraordinarily beautiful city that is. Uh, I remember the one supper, though, that uh, Milos was meditating about the awfulness of acting again. He said, oh, acting, acting, acting. So they want, they want, you know, casting you because you are you. So I want to see Simon Callos playing. Uh, I'm Simon Callos. As Shikaneder. I don't want to see Shikaneder. I want to see Simon Gallows as Shikaneder because this is why I'm casting you. And then Murray said, um, Okay, uh, Milos, but Salier is a very nasty man. Another of those long pauses. Murray, you think too much. I kind of wanted to finish by um, bringing it maybe more, more up to date. Have you had to think about why Amadeus has become such a larger-than-life character. Yes, I, I mean, that's, that's Peter's great skill, I suppose. I mean, and many people, of course, feel that it, it, it's a very partial portrait of him, and it is. And Peter Schaffer would say exactly that. Peter really helped to define the image of Mozart that we have. In other words, he completely broke the image of Mozart as this little porcelain figure, this, this perfect little person, which, which had survived nearly 200 years. This, this, this idea of... of genius finding itself in a person who is as it were quite unworthy of it uh, that genius just strikes uh, quite randomly Salieri has done everything to be good to be a pious man hard-working a great serious teacher absolutely fulfilled his brief as a court composer superbly. You can't fault him. A diplomat, a charmer, a, 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 an intelligent man, a great contributor to the musical life of his times. All of that has not been enough to give him true inspiration. So God has let him down. And people responded very greatly to that. Uh, you know, the very last line of the the. Players, mediocrities of the world, I salute you, turning out to the audience. 
And uh, everybody, in a way, can respond to that because we all feel mediocre pretty well by comparison with somebody else, you know. Mm. Uh, personally, I think that what what did make the place so utterly extraordinary was music, the idea of music, because because music is essentially an abstract art. It's an in, in, ineffable thing. We can't understand why music has the effect on us that it does. Mm. And Peter Schaffer chose the music so masterfully in the stage production, and of course it was, uh, had a considerable influence on the music in the in the screenplay as well. But but he he really um, opened the ears, I think, of a lot of people who didn't uh, care for Mozart or had no real concept of what Mozart was like. When, for example, most famously, when Salieri hears the. That famous adagio from the from the wind serenade, everybody in the audience just melted with the absolute beauty of it. Once the oboe starts its song over the old hurdy gurdy accompaniment, people just couldn't believe their ears, and that was an amazing thing that Peter did. Peter Schaffer was single handedly responsible for the new popularity of Mozart. I mean, after all this time and all the, all this living with Mozart, do you, do you still put, put some of his music on your stereo? Yes, and I just I, I was just in Ireland uh, ten days ago doing um, concerts with the Irish Chamber Orchestra and uh, a couple of wonderful conductors. And they, the the last symphonies, thirty eight, thirty nine, forty, and forty one, and I read letters uh, in between and uh, miraculous music. It, it is uh, uh, clearly there. There are some absolutely extraordinary composers but Mozart has a I suppose there's a an extraordinary charm about Mozart's music and a humanity you really feel the composer in the music Bach is almost beyond that you almost can't quite feel who Bach is because it's on such a extraordinary sustained level it's sort of pure music but Mozart's Always, it's always a, a, a particularity about it, a, a special sense of this extraordinary individual touch that he brings, always, which is, we feel we know him, you know. Lastly, we speak to the man responsible for bringing the score to life once again as the movie unfolds at the Royal Albert Hall in October. Ludwig Vicky joins me via Skype, and I started by asking him about where this journey performing live score to film first began. Yes, I, I founded uh, 1999 my own orchestra. I thought always uh, here nobody played movie music and so I founded an orchestra to play movie music. The first thing we did was Charlie Chaplin and that was my first experience as conductor to follow movies and that was a very good school. Then I met Howard Shore and he brought me to that world. He, he asked me if I would like to conduct the world premiere of Fellowship of the Ring, the first of the Lord of the Rings movies. Of course, I said yes. I didn't know what what I said to what I said yes, but it was an amazing experience. And that was 2008 in the January, February was the world premiere of that. 
And since then, I premiered almost 20 big movies live to projection. Let's talk about the challenges. It's not easy, is it? I mean, you've got to get everything right so people feel that um, it's seamless. Yeah, it's it's sure not easy. You have different levels. You have to keep an eye on it. The first of all is, is the score, the orchestra, choir, and then the movie. But for the conductor to be always on the right place in each bar, each second, it's uh, for so long time. Well, let's talk specifically about Amadeus. I love Amadeus. That's why I helped to creating the score. It's wonderful music and they used it in a way in the movie. It couldn't be better written as movie music. It's so impressive how they used the moods, the right movement, right music for the right atmosphere in the, in the scenery. When we created the score, we sit down many hours and watch the movie, listen to the music, and we have always the right music and found all the right um, excerpts. And the other thing is, which which is really tricky is the singers are still on screen, like dialogue. We left the singers in, the soloists, and to go with them, with each syllable, with each small rubato and movement they do, it's that's very difficult to to be perfect with the movie but there are those moments where it switches from one piece to another which um are, i would imagine are challenging yeah there there are there are some some switches it was also very difficult to write that down that an orchestra can write that in in a good way you have to know it very well that's the only way how you can do it um very fluently and that it sounds like natural the changes and the cuts some cuts are... One cut in, in the Mozartrichium is, until today, I don't know how they did it. It overlaps a half bar, the upper and the lower voices, and we had to find out how we can do that live. Specifically in this case, that the music is the one of the main characters, and so it's going to be even more unique in that sense. Get, get to see this thing which is maybe contained, um, let loose. In this case, you're completely right, yes. that's. A, I mean, the whole movie is about music. And so when the music is live, it's even a, a step more than only the flat screen. And I think always it's a, a kind of three-dimensional see or listening the movie. You have in front of the movie an orchestra, and that's that's the opposite from three-dimensional to see into the screen so the whole ensemble come closer to the audience and play for them live the music which is a, a fantastic feeling for the for the audience who can listen that i'm ben eshmade and you've been listening to an academy of st martin in the fields podcast that's about all we have time for but as usual we'd love to hear your thoughts on what you've heard so please do get in touch via our official Facebook page or on Twitter at ASMF Orchestra using the hashtag ASMF Podcast. Amadeus Live takes place on the 14th of October 2016 at the Royal Albert Hall. The event has now sold out, but do check with the venue for returns. If you wish to find out more about the Academy or support our work by joining the Academy Friends, please visit asmf.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>